I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. We've got a busy, busy show today with a request for a stock analysis from a viewer. Uh, Flash Investor, looking forward to that one. We're going to have a chat about cryptocurrency, which is very unlike us. Um, we've got the good, the bad and the ugly again, but this time in US stocks. Uh, I'm Steve W and Paul is not here this week, uh, but the sun's out and we're bringing the guns out. So I've got Human Munitions Factory, Steve D with me. How are you, Steve? Uh, yeah, I'm not doing too too bad, Steve. You'll you'll note my cheeriness last week managed to uh, crash the market the day after we recorded. So uh, I apologise to everybody for the second week running. Uh, I've said I was I was in a good mood about the market, and it seems to have been uh, a, a disaster. Which is which is funny because we had we had rate hikes that the market thought was pretty good and what they expected, and then the next day everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Um, but yeah. It's been a, an okay week, Steve. Took the uh, the little kitten to the vet for the first time. She now hates the vet, which is standard of any animal, I believe. Uh, my nephew managed to uh, get reception all incredibly uh, sort of worried of me when he asked me if it was today that we were going to get the vet to kill the kitten. Uh, that was because the last time uh, we had to go to the vets, uh, we had to put my big cat down. And oh. we have to explain to him that that's how that happened. So, yes, mm. thank you, Arthur, for uh, letting people, uh, everyone in reception think I'm a, some kind of cat murderer. Um, but, yeah, Steve, better week than me? Um, <laughs> well, I haven't been putting any cats down, put it that way. Um, nor has anyone been accusing me of doing it, actually, either. Yeah, being careful what you wish for or what you speak into existence is, I suppose, an interesting theme. I said last week that... Uh, Dividends are just good things to reinvest when the prices are lower, and the question is, how much do you want? I got paid three dividends in a day in the last week, reinvested them all, hasn't touched the sides of what's uh, coming down, that's the way these things work, it's about not getting rich off dividend stuff. Uh, but I am okay with it, um, I've been sort of shuffling around my portfolio a little bit, and I'm trying to trade less, but it feels like I'm seeing quite a lot of kind of price notifications going off, including ones that I set, what well, feels like it must be over a year ago and have subsequently forgotten about. I mean, I got one the other day on uh, Alexandria Real Estate, which is the kind of lab uh, REIT that makes, makes rents out um, uh, laboratories to companies like Pfizer and Merck and most of the kind of big names, uh, and had it notified that they'd been through a price that I had set, and no idea why I put that number there, to be honest with you. It was quite a while ago. Um, and I can't remember whether I meant to look at it again or buy it, to be honest, and can't work out why it's gone down either. So it's, it's a fun time. I've had more interesting notifications than that go off too. But Interestingly, yeah. I had the same notification go off for Alexandria. Was mm. it because it went through 140? Yes. Yes, it was. It seems like <laughs> we both had the same price target and we've both been equally confused as to why we had it. So I looked at it and gone, why have I got this? What What is this? What does this signal? And I was trying to figure out if it was like 20... 
20 FFO back maybe a year ago or something like that, but it doesn't seem to be that. And it doesn't seem to be 25. It's a strange old number that I seem to have arbitrarily punched into the price alerts. And I don't think I'm particularly interested even at this price. No, I'm not. It's sort of interesting, really, when things come down and through price targets. Either it happens by itself, in which case it's tempting to think there's something wrong with the company because uh, that stock is falling and nothing else is. That's a bad thing to think. You should think about those things independently. But it's very tempting to think, hang on, what the hell's happened here? Um, I need to reconsider my kind of investment thesis. And maybe I'm still right. And maybe I still want to buy it at these levels. But I need to think about that again. Hmm. Or it's because the entire market's coming down. And if everything's coming down at roughly the same rate, the stuff that was relatively expensive before is still relatively expensive. Just it's reached the level that you were happy buying it at when the rest of the market was where it was, I don't know, 14 months ago or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, it is a strange thing, isn't it? And the problem with the price lights at the moment is I tend to be getting quite a few of them. And I'm <laughs> just, I'm sat looking at prices and, and it's about, I mean, we're just coming up to putting the deposit and I'll be doing it this Friday. Uh, and it's, you think to yourself like, well, what am I going to put this money in? Do you know what I mean? There's so much opportunity. If you spread it too thin, am I making enough of a dent in those ones that have dropped quite significantly? Should I lump it all in something and get the average price of that down? And is that just a stupid mistake? It's... It's nice to have uh, plenty plenty of opportunities where you feel like you could win on the other side of the market. I think that's how I feel at the moment. The issue is is that I have to really, you know, get my head down and have a, have a proper think about what I'm going to do. Because, you know, I think these moments, the decisions we make in the market at, at this point are probably going to be the key ones, um, especially as the prices are getting lower and lower. I think you're right. I think looking towards the other side is, is a thing to do. A couple of uh, things on that, I guess. I mean, I've heard people say it in the back, talking about making preparations for a bear market now. We're in a bear market. Time for preparing for that was ages ago. But where I'm kind of looking is in the stuff that's getting, I think, unfairly um, dismissed, where the business still looks good and the cash flows look decent. And the market doesn't like it either because dividends are in fashion and it doesn't pay one or it only pays a small one or and so on and so forth. But it's really about for me kind of thinking about, well, how's it going to look on the other side of things? The other side may take a long time to come, by the way. I'm happy to wait it out and keep buying into stuff. So... I think for me, I'm not too interested in trying to position myself for what I can see in front of me to stay afloat for the next seven days, month, maybe even year, uh, to be honest. But uh, I'm thinking what, what kind of comes next in the, the big macroeconomic cycle. Uh, no doubt we'll see a big return to a massive bull run again. Rates will come down at some point, so on and so forth. And then I'll go back to looking at buying stuff like Kellogg's, which has actually held up reasonably well so far. I think the dream here, the best scenario that we can we can expect is that these gradual rate hikes eventually cause a drop in inflation, and the minute the Fed see that, they they cease with um with the interest rate rises, and they they, they cease with the um you know if we drop into a recession, they cease with the the QT. I think that's that's the best scenario the market can expect at the moment. While quantitative tightening is going on, interest rates are rising. It's really it's going to continue to be a bear market, I would suggest. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting interesting time, and I guess we don't really know what's going to happen. The only thing we can control is our deposits and what we spend that on, and uh, yeah, just have a really good think about everything. I think that's the thing, but no paralysis by analysis. I guess that's that's my issue. I'm, I do tend to get a bit stuck when I've got this wedge of cash to stick in about just, just where's best. Thinking about the sort of thing that might get you stuck, actually, here's a question that I was uh, wondering about. The answer for me uh, to this is, Pretty hard no, um, but I'm interested in how other people feel about this, and particularly yourself. Do you ever kind of wonder about 
portfolio allocation here. So when I'm thinking about it, do you think, oh, Christ, I am massively in the hole on, I don't know, Mercado Libra or something, but I can't make this more of my portfolio at the moment. It's already X percent. I don't want it being X plus 10 percent or, or so on and so forth. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, same same kind of same kind of scenario that, uh, that I think you're thinking is that I think in, in a bear market like this, you, you're kind of just looking at those percentages and thinking like, well, can I can I bring this down? That that seems to be the first thing you're looking at. I believe in this company 30% ago, do you know what I mean? And and now the market thinks thinks it's worth 30% less. And that, that's got to be an opportunity. I have this problem with Netflix at the moment. I'm down about 30-something percent on my Netflix position, but it's already one of my bigger positions. Mm. So you think to yourself, look, if I'm wrong on this, do I want to be wrong to this degree? And then on the flip side, you think to yourself, but I just don't think I'm wrong. <laughs> and yeah, I, I can get that. But allocation is definitely something when the market's going up that I spend a lot of time considering. And I don't like to overbuild uh, new positions and things like that. But in this market at the moment, I'm, I am tempted to build really big positions, especially in your, your Amazons, your Googles and, and, and your Netflixes and your Disneys and people like that. They, these are companies that I think, well, look, if I, I don't think I'm wrong on these four. And even if I'm wrong on one of them and right on three of them, that will be amazing. So, you know, it's it's tough, isn't it, I guess is what I'm saying. It, it's tough. Yeah, I tend to sort of, for better or for worse, try and follow Buffett around here. I mean, you look at his stock portfolio, it's nearly 50% Apple. Uh, and I know there's a lot of stocks in it, but once you get out of that top 10, maybe even that top five, you get into stuff that is kind of less than 1%. And admittedly, less than 1% of the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio is a decent size holding in a lot of stuff. Less mm. than 1% of my portfolio. And I start sort of thinking to myself, at least some of the time, why have I got this? It's sort of less than 1% of my portfolio. It's up about 12% in some cases. This is never going to make a meaningful difference to anything for me. Let's roll it in and attempt to staunch the bleeding on Amazon, which is currently about 18% of my portfolio or something. I, that's not the right number. I don't know what it is. But it'll be different I, by the time we get to airing this anyway. I used to have that problem before. But I used to basically run my portfolio. as like 75% of it was in sort of like uh, ETFs and bonds. And then the last 25% was play money. And I, I would fluctuate between those two amounts. But when you're dealing with only 25% of your overall portfolio value, and then you're only putting 1% of that into a stock, uh, you know, potentially less than 1% if you if you want to try and build a, I don't know, a 20 position portfolio, uh, <laughs> that soon looks like not very much. So I remember like agonizing over the early days of my investing career with like, like 60 quid in the stock and thinking to myself, look, even if this does really well and it like two X's, it's like, Mm. 120 quid it's like is that really worth thinking or spending any time thinking about in an early portfolio so yeah i think it changes doesn't it as your portfolio gets bigger one percent evidently becomes a bigger part of your money and you know you probably can and cannot afford to lose it but uh yeah it's strange isn't it i guess we're all probably looking at amounts in our portfolios that we you know maybe five ten years ago we probably wouldn't dream that we had you know, to be able to, to grasp hold of. So it's strange how your, your, your thoughts and feelings about this money change over time and as you learn about the market. Yeah, it's a strange one. I mean, I know there are uh, people watching and listening to this that are at different stages in their kind of investing career and might be sort of further back than us. I, I, I always had a principle that I now think I've moved away from, which is 
I'm going to act as though I have a load of money because it's the right way to act. I don't think what the best things to invest in are depend on how much money you have. And at one level, that becomes false because once you get to such a high level, uh, and this is a level that you and I are unlikely to ever achieve even between us, and if we do, we won't really care about the problems that come with it, but there comes a point where you can't buy companies um, that will make a meaningful difference. There's nowhere near where you and I are. You and I can pick the smallest, best stock you like. We have the entire kind of thing available for us, and if we really wanted to, I think we could take the smallest listed thing we could find and chuck our entire damn portfolio into an itch. Um, but I, I sort of thought, I wonder whether I should try and... I wonder sometimes about acting like you're smart money when you're not smart money, uh, basically, because they have things that kind of limit them in certain ways and so on. And I kind of wonder, well, do I really want to kind of follow role models who um, would quite frankly not like to be limited in the ways they are and would kill somebody for my kind of um, discretionary mandate to go anywhere you want uh, in the stock market or outside and into sort of bonds or, or whatever? Two things, and I guess that sounds like fake it till you make it. And mm. the second thing is, if I put all my old portfolio into the smallest thing on the market, and and that went up, I wouldn't be here making myself accountable. I'd <laughs> Cheers, Steve. It was great for this couple of years. Here's a couple of hundred quid to give everyone the donations back. <laughs> See you later, boys. <laughs> mm. Well, if you have any ideas as to where Steve should lump all of his money into and the smallest market cap thing you can find, probably some biotech somewhere, which. If you hit the right one, mm. then you, we may well not see you for dust in one of those things. Um, then do write them down below in the comments. Um, here's a stock, though, that is a request for us to have a look at that I doubt very much is going to grow exponentially. But it is one that's big enough that we could fit all of our money into it. So we had a, a request from the Flash Investor. Uh, follow Flash Investor on Twitter, um, at the very least, because there's some really interesting stuff on that uh, feed. Uh, to have a chat about Dunelm. Um, Dunelm, for those of you who are not watching or listening in the UK, is basically a home and garden furnishings retailer. has around 175 stores all over the company and also an online presence where it sells things out of its distribution centres. Steve, how many distribution centres do you reckon Dunelm has? God, I, would, I mean, I wouldn't go for many. <laughs> mm. uh, two. Good idea. Oh, nearly. One. Correct. Yes, it Yay. sells things out of one distribution centre. Um it sells all kinds of home furnishing things from mugs through to garden furniture, through to curtains, through to um, storage things and all these kinds of things. If it sounds a lot like Ikea, um, then it is a lot like Ikea as far as I can tell. Uh, so this is obviously, as far as I can see, the height of non-essential retail. Uh, non-essential being defined in kind of COVID terms um, here. So when you have a pandemic and a lockdown... Uh, this is one of the first things to close and one of the last things to open. We're hoping that's not going to happen again, but it does go some way to explaining what their business has been doing over the last few years, uh, which was getting shuttered and trying to sell things online. So it held up pretty well uh, in the pandemic, given it, it was shuttered, its revenues went down and so on. But um, this isn't a company that's massively operationally leveraged. So what I mean by that is as their kind of revenues went down, their costs went down with them fairly well which meant that it wasn't like a kind of airline where everything went to hell in a handbasket. Uh, sure, things went down, but they started coming back quite nicely, and the company's in kind of okay shape. They've had some modest dilution. They've had some very modest uh, debt raising. You would expect it to be in a worse position having been closed for a bit. But actually, I think it's proved to be reasonably well resilient. 
Uh, does this business have a moat, then, is the question. Um, maybe is my answer to that. I'm not super certain I think this has that much of a moat. I don't think there's anything much going by the way of brand loyalty. Um, Ikea is almost ubiquitous in this field from what I can see of it. And uh, Dunelm is very much a kind of localised version of that sort of thing. It's a retailer uh, and it's a non-essential retailer. Um, Steve, what would you think a good gross margin for a home furnishings retailer might be? It's going to be, I would imagine it's not going to be particularly high. Um, you would, wouldn't you? But. Go on. Higher than you're thinking, I would guess. It's about 50%. Uh, which is not bad for a gross margin. Double-digit operating margins, so close to 10 or so. Uh, You've seen worse in retail space here, so I wonder whether there's a kind of uh, some sort of... And since I don't think there's much going by way of brand power, that makes it seem to me like they have their production costs pretty well under control. Because if you think this is a commoditized business and no one really cares whether you get a Dunelm bath mat or an Argos bath mat or an Ikea bath mat... um, they don't sell meatballs in Dunelm, actually, so maybe there's an edge for Ikea. Uh, but uh, what you might well find is that it comes down to cost, and they've got a reasonable kind of ability to, to make a decent margin there, from what I can see of it. Uh, let's get to the risks, then. Um, here's the kind of things that I find risky about this stock. Uh, we spoke a couple of weeks ago, Steve and I, about a company called Target, which is a US retailer, which was talking about having too much inventory, especially in the garden furnishing section. Dunelm's inventory looks like it's going high and their management has warned that they think it's quite high and that there's inflation coming through and that things are slowing down. And if you've heard this story before from us quite recently, I I couldn't help but think I was seeing a sort of similar theme uh, coming through on this. I'm not saying it's their fault. I'm not saying they're a bad business for it by any means. But I do worry about people's... Um, spending slowing down and Dunelm finding itself with a load of stuff it's going to sit on the shelves for a little while what will happen I don't think they're going to have a massive fire sale and get rid of it uh, for what it's worth I think it will just sit there but that will cause things like accounting write downs uh, as accountants say no we're not giving you full value for this lawn furniture because we don't think you can sell it full value for lawn Mm. furniture at least not within a year anyway Uh, management says they have stuff for every budget so they will cope fairly well in inflation I think that sounds optimistic to me this sounds like one of the first things that goes uh when or at least you start downgrading and i think the people that might downgrade into dunelm are probably not going to be that badly hit by inflation if you have a house with many many fancy things in like steve does uh then you probably are downgrading yourself into dunelm uh if you have a house full of cheap things like i do uh, you probably can't afford dunelm stuff anymore my house is in the more expensive part of the world i don't own it though uh, Steve, any thoughts on kind of uh, economy and risk and stuff for Dunelm here? I think the primary risk for Dunelm is that it's going to suffer in pretty much the same way that the, the sort of techie sort of companies have in that it's had some of its growth pulled forward, some of its demand pulled forward. There was a period, obviously, during COVID where people were working from home and they were looking around their house thinking, the, the, you know, this bath, this rug's shit. These curtains let light through. Glad about blah. <laughs> and John Elm would have been the places that these people visit to go and, uh, and and get these things to get rugs, to get to get curtains, to get those kind of pillows and soft furnishings and and do it rooms and general general home furnishing. And the issue being now is that we're seeing a cost of living squeeze. Uh, this the the vast majority of these jobs have been done. Uh, extensions and house building are likely to have been done and they are starting to slow being in the industry. I see it. Um, so I think that's an issue for Dunelm. There's just 
I just don't think there's going to be the demand. And uh, as you say, if inventory is rising, that's already a sign that there just isn't the demand. Uh, so for me, that's it's a straight no. Yeah, inventory is rising. I mean, there's been some fairly impressive revenue pushing along. The question, as you say, is how much of that's pulled forward and how much of that becomes sustainable. I guess we will see. It doesn't look to me... I was surprised by its growth numbers, put it that way. I, I was pleasantly surprised by them. I thought that's actually a reasonable effort for an organisation of this type. And I don't think the stock is super expensive either. There's some debt kicking in there and not a huge amount of it. But it's trading at around 10 times earnings, which is not giant i know it's based in the uk but it's uh i think it's footsie 250 um but that's not terrible to my mind as it doesn't seem to be in huge trouble financially or anything of the sort uh i will conclude with a complete pull stock analysis fast grass doesn't have a line on it because they don't pull data for uh that footsie 250 thing so i can't tell you whether it's above or below the line because i can't be bothered to plot them uh by hand anyway uh, and it pays a dividend of around 5%, which is, I don't know, is that interesting? Probably. Uh, even in rising interest rate, if you're the kind of person who likes dividends, I would give this a look if I were a dividend hunter. I am not. But if I were, I'd be interested, I think. Yeah, I guess that's the point, isn't it? The point is that we always say with these companies that have a decent dividend, if you think they can weather the storm and it would take talented management to mm -hmm. you know, get through this and, a, and a, a, a somebody with a good eye on, on the supply chain and customer, customer demand, if they can get through this period unscathed and can continue to pay the dividend, you, you don't need a lot of growth from this company to satisfy the, the share price increase and to get yourself a good return. Whether or not they will do this is that's the bet you're making essentially when mm. you invest in this company and uh, i mean for me it's not it's not something that i would pick but i can see the attraction for for people it might be that i've missed something fairly glaring on all of this by not looking at the news carefully enough around dunelm do let me know if that's the case and apologies if i have but a kind of fairly standard uh, analysis of this and i'm not pretending there's anything particularly deep and insightful uh, based on this just kind of my and your uh, fairly instinctive thoughts with a little bit of looking it's in a sector I like at the moment. I do like the idea of the cyclical stuff because I think people are panicking about them. And you may well find something decent getting thrown out along with some stuff that is going to endure some short-term uh, headwinds. And I mean short-term at the business level, not just short-term at the stock level. I mean, things there may well be earnings come down uh, in this sort of thing. But at 10 times earnings, you can probably take a bit of an earnings hit if you think that cycle is going to come back and you think this company is fairly strong. I think where I'm looking at the moment tends to be for stuff that is less cyclical than people think it is. So for things that are getting cast off, where I think I don't see the demand slowing in quite that way, which is why I talked about Games Workshop before. I think that's an, that's going to be an interesting test case for that uh, stock. We will see um, exactly how much people really care about that. We will also see how much they care about their home furnishings, I guess. Uh, so that's us on Dunelm. What have we missed? Let us know in the comments. Let's talk about something then that we don't talk about very often. Let's talk about Bitcoin and let's talk about crypto. I'll tell you why uh, we don't talk about this very often, because those of you with sharp ears will remember that we have talked about it occasionally on this show. Um, mostly the reason we don't talk about it that much anymore is because I don't know an awful lot about crypto. And whilst Paul wants me to have strong views about these things, I find it very difficult to generate them with any kind of conviction. Uh, and plus, I think I would probably annoy people if I did. But um, Bitcoin is, well, there's the good news and the bad news for Bitcoin this year. It's been struggling. It started out the year at around $48,500, had a 52-week high of 67500 And 
the good news is it's now holding above $20,000 around the time that we're uh, talking about this. So it's making news, but making news by coming down quite a lot, which meant that we felt we should probably at least have a kind of gentle chat about it and see how we go. Um, I've heard various people say various things, but I thought I'd consult the best Bitcoin analyst I know. And since I only know one, I'm going to talk to Steve. Um, Steve, what kind of crypto coins do you own? So I, just before we start, I would like hmm. to step in as only our mediocre crypto <laughs> analyzer. <laughs> Paul is probably somebody who's been in the space a little bit more than me, but uh, I, I have taken an interest in it uh, up to up to a point, and there are two um, coins, I guess, or two currencies, cryptocurrencies that I do own. I've got a full Ethereum, and I've got remaining, I've got about 60 dot, I did donate about half of it to uh, the Ukraine uh, relief effort um, back when the war started. So uh, unfortunately for them, I hope they haven't held on to it because I think it's uh, about 30% of its value at the moment. I I'm sure they haven't. I'm sure they've had more pressing things to spend it on. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I did I did donate that. Is it easy for Ukraine or wherever you donated it to, sorry, um, to convert that back into, you know, um, I don't want to say a currency, right, because crypto might be a currency, but let's say uh, a currency they can probably use more easily at the moment. I, I believe so, because um, they, they were they were literally asking for donations through cryptocurrencies at the oh, time. It was all cool. going through the, um, I think it was Ukraine's main bank, um, but yeah, oh. it was all on the, it was on the, Ukra uh, the Ukraine's official Twitter page, and and it was one of those spare-of-the-moment things. You think, oh, that would be a nice thing to do. So, you know, it's my little bit of effort. I'm not going to go and shoot anybody. Um, but, you know, I will happily pay for some bullets, I guess. Yeah, um, I could spend a while wondering about whether that makes you morally any better or not. I'll pay someone else to go and do it. Just don't make me do it. Yeah. Um, so what does the world need crypto for, I guess, is the kind of next question. I always worry about the use case on Bitcoin a little bit because... I kind of sit here in my position of blissful ignorance, wondering about who to believe. On the one hand, I have Charlie Munger, uh, who tells me that the main use for Bitcoin is so that criminals can use it to perform transactions without people seeing them. Um, and then, I, on the other hand, I have Paul, who tells me that this is not true. Um, and then I have sort of two thoughts. One is that I'm not really sure I want to take Paul's word for it on what crypto does and doesn't do. And the other thought is I'm definitely not sure I want to take Charlie Munger's word for it on what crypto does and doesn't do. I'm not sure who's the smaller expert on this kind of thing. But if that's not what it's for, what is it for? It's tricky to really tell you what it's for because there's a lot of different, uh, different cryptocurrencies that are all trying to solve different little things so mm -hmm. the way i the way i think about it and they sort of the they explain it like i'm five way of talking about cryptocurrency is if you imagine the very early uh the very early computer um before we before we had ways of sending messages or receiving network data and things like that we had to invent a load of protocols and they are just little programs that do certain functions. And essentially, that is what crypto do. Sometimes you have uh, something like Ethereum, which is essentially like uh, you, imagine, you would imagine that being like a Windows. And on top of Ethereum, people build a lot of different protocols to do different things. So there'll be things that Ethereum says, look, natively, I can do this. And if somebody says, well, that would be really good. But if we just built on top of Ethereum and changed it a little bit so that this, this thing it did natively works better or cheaper, uh, you know, you can do that as well. And the basic in in 
in crypto speak, they call that layer zero. So layer zero would be your your windows, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then layer one, layer two is functions built on top of layer zero that either provide additional functionality or improve the functionality uh, that's already existing. So in terms of what the world needs it for, the, the truth of the matter is, is that it doesn't actually provide much functionality that we don't already have. Uh-huh. The idea being is that you could do it in maybe a, a, a trust... The, a lot of cryptocurrency was born out of a period of time when people didn't didn't like the banks or still continue to not like the banks or don't trust the banks or don't like the way that these things are um, are sort of centrally managed. The idea mm-hmm. being that if we decentralize the management of uh, the currency, you would get a, a better, more reliable, um, more secure, a potentially more private um, way of um, a way of having very similar services. I think one of the easiest use cases for crypto would be just for an exchange. It's quite cheap to buy a certain crypto and send it to a, a, a wallet in a different country, and they can then use an exchange to convert that back. And generally, that would be cheaper than um, you know sending something over a money transfer mm-hmm. or a moneygram or, or, or web to that effect. That's an easy solution for it. But there are other things as well. There are things like Audius. Uh, they're trying to build a crypto-based Spotify, essentially. There are things like uh, Chainlink, which is trying to build a big sort of data and uh, sort of search repository. Uh, so they're trying to be almost like crypto Google, I guess. Uh, so there's plenty of different things that people are trying to do on there. But the whether or not they're all useful or not is, uh, well, that's a different question. Sure. So they may well not all be useful. I get that there's almost certainly I've taken my eye right off this um, and I very much only see the stuff that kind of appears in my inbox as part of general financial news. But the idea of a kind of better, quicker, more reliable uh, way of transferring money makes a lot of sense, right? As a a kind of use case, at least for crypto in general, or maybe some part of that kind of uh, enterprise. That's something that I can kind of get on board with. I guess I wonder on the sort of risky side then. I mean, I hear that different countries appear to view crypto in different ways. So the government of El Salvador, I think, uh, is very much open to bringing Bitcoin on as a currency um, rather than just a kind of way of moving things from one currency to another. The government of China, which is significantly larger than El Salvador, has banned it uh, from what I understand of things. What happens if Bitcoin gets banned or, or, sorry, any of your preferred crypto, I guess. I know you don't own Bitcoin, but it's the most obvious example here. Uh, It gets either banned or regulated or something. Um, Regulated, I don't think is going to be the worst thing in the world. I think at the moment, crypto has a a pretty big problem with, well, its biggest problem with mainstream adoption is that uh, there's a lot of scams out there. There's a lot of crappy coins that are just... Uh, joke coins that are diluting at ridiculous amounts. There's a lot of pump and dump out there. I mean, every time we post a video, we have to remove a comment from somebody trying to shill something or something cryptocurrency related. So that's its major. And it's not, you know, it's not unique in that. There's a lot of stock scams. There's a lot of pump and dump uh, sort of stuff going on. But crypto is especially egregious. And unfortunately, at the moment, the the press has that mentality where they're going to push that narrative on. Uh, in terms of getting banned, if it gets banned, it's it's done. I don't see uh, there's just I don't see a way of uh, it really working. I think uh, if you were to lose the major exchanges, if they had to to shut down, uh, you know, and they were able to process money back from from a crypto to an actual currency, I just don't see why anybody would bother. Uh, and I think that's the biggest issue. Regulation, yeah, that's fine. I think 
you know, that's something that cryptocurrency users would have to learn to live with. I think if you want it to become a currency, then governments are going to have to have an element of, of at least visibility into how it works. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons China doesn't like it because it thinks if it, if it does become too popular, uh, it could destabilize, um, destabilize a home currency, which is obviously not something that you would particularly want. Hmm. Interesting stuff. So, I mean, one thing I kind of noticed from that is that your initial reaction then wasn't, what the hell are you talking about? That can't happen um, to either regulation or things being banned. I mean, from my kind of very much outside perspective here, I genuinely wondered whether the point of these things was that they were supposed to be a thing that can't be seen by governments. And if they become regulated, well, then the, the, very much the kind of exact point of these things goes away. Uh, but that's a genuine possibility from your perspective then. Well, when you when you deal with an exchange, so when you log on to an exchange and you make an account, uh, you you have to submit your identification. Um, you have to submit your address. You have to submit your uh, usually your tax identification number. And the reason for this being is that um, because these uh, exchanges are actually handling, um, pro I'm going to call it proper currency, they're 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 handling proper currency. They have to do what's known as know your customer. So uh, it's part of anti fraud. Um, what can what happens from that point of view is that you can then take your proper currency and change it into a cryptocurrency. You can take your cryptocurrency and you can transfer it to a, a, a wallet. All of this is registered on the blockchain. It's all registered and it can all be traced back to you. You can actually take that wallet. You can take it, you know, off the internet. It becomes a cold wallet, hot wallet being connected to the internet, cold wallet being not connected to the internet. So you you're swapping safety for uh, essentially. Um, you know the ease of ease of conveying it and liquidity, I guess, back to back to a currency that you can spend. But the issue is that you can take it off in a cold wallet and you can sit it in a vault and you can do absolutely nothing with it. But at some point, when you want to convert that back, you then have to put it back onto exchange again, which is going to be registered onto uh, back onto the blockchain again. You can look at the identification numbers and it can all be traced back to you uh, again. So, is it any better than spending pounds or dollars at the moment? I I don't know, but the way it gets adopted and the way it becomes uh, a bigger thing is through regulation and acceptance, which, you know, you, you would not get acceptance at a government level without the regulation. Interesting. So it's a lot to think about in that kind of thing. I guess last thing then for trying to locate where you are on the grand scheme of um, people with views on crypto and stuff. So in my head, you have down one end, you have what we'll call the level zeros, uh, the people who are basically Charlie Munger, right? I mean, it's worthless fake gold, and if it has any use, it has a bad use, and it's no part of a civilized society. Um, it doesn't work as an inflation hedge. I mean, so far, it's been proven to be right that it doesn't work as an inflation hedge. It's behaved like a tech stock, uh, or a speculative tech stock, for that matter. But it may one day work as an inflation hedge once all the Bitcoin in the world has been mined, and so on and so forth, and it's developed its proper... Uh, credentials. Um, up the other end, you have people who think, look, it's basically the future of money. And if you don't understand it, fine, too bad for you, but you are missing out because there really is a lot going for this. It's better than ordinary currency in pretty much every way. We'll call them the level 10s uh, for the moment. I kind of, I suppose, by default, I'm a level five and I don't take myself to know anything at all uh, about these things. But there are a lot of people, I think, historically, there have been a lot of people down either end uh, of these things. And I sort of feel like people have generally moved towards kind of more of a meh uh, sort of position off of off of either uh, either pole uh, one way or another. Where do you kind of situate yourself here, Steve? Are you sort of broadly pro or broadly anti-crypto? Uh, crypto? 
I'm mildly pro. Mm-hmm. Uh, is I guess where I'd be out. If if we were saying ten was you know was like a maxi, um, or, and uh, and zero was a munger, mm. I would probably <laughs> say I'm about six. Uh, okay. I don't mind that. There's a lot of ideas in there that that I quite like. Uh, dot uh, polka dot being one of the ones that I think is is really interesting. Their their idea is basically creating a system that can connect all different types of blockchains together and get them all to talk to each other. So rather than having, you know, all these fragmented currencies all over the place, Dot creates an ecosystem in which everybody can talk to everybody, which sounds to me like a sort of holistic solution to um, the issue, you know, to, to the issues that blockchain will face down the line. The issue with Dot, I guess, at the moment is that the market doesn't really give a shit about it. So that's <laughs> uh, that's that's at a pretty low uh, a low kind of price. It, it's actually founded by one of the people who he was the CTO at Ethereum. So when Ethereum, uh, be, you know, formed its, its currency, there was a bit of a it, it, an undocumented fight at the top and and the founders all split off to go do various projects. So uh, Vitalik stayed to do Ethereum. Uh, Gavin Wood, who went to the university just up the road from me, uh, he went to do Polkadot. And Charles Hoskinson is another one of the famous ones. He went off to go do Cardano, which is another one of the top 10. So between the, those three people, they've, they've split off from the second biggest crypto and, and they've made cryptos that now all sit in the top 10 in terms of market cap and, and have been for for quite a while uh, they're definitely driving uh the driving force behind crypto and, and and it is an interesting sector but for me at the moment there's just i think the gloss has been taken off it there was a lot of promise early on and the issue i have really is that a lot of these projects come up with a lot of hype and then they just die a death of of, of just and a lack of interest and and i think as a as a sector as a whole um that's what we're seeing at the moment which could be the right time to start buying some of them but mm. at the moment i i just think there's better stuff to buy like i think at the moment there's productive and unproductive assets i i have crypto solely in the unproductive assets even though you know dot and ethereum which i do buy or have bought are in the uh, you can stake them and you can earn a return on them um and I do, and I do do that. But I, I still think, at the moment, stocks is where I would sooner have my money. Is it worth staking them? I mean, your accountant will charge you so much money to figure out what the hell's going on with this sort of thing. I mean, did, would you just lose any return that you get by having well, to then pay someone to figure out your tax? The problem with staking them is, is that uh, so according to my accountant, who has been uh, less uh, less than useful on the matter. <laughs> Uh, is that um, so staking gets charged at income tax level, but unfortunately you can't tot it all up at the end of the year and say, you know, well, Ethereum's $6 now and I got six Ethereum, so that's £36 in income tax. Unfortunately, it gets taxed at the point that you receive it. So if you receive one Polkadot when it was $16 and you don't do anything with it, you get charged $16 of income tax, even though you haven't sold it and that, token is now only worth six dollars oh so, so it's... it's a really really crap system for for staking at the moment especially if you you know get to the realms of self-assessment where you have to declare these things so so it's like the worst bits of an income statement then in that case with kind of securities i mean you hear buffett complaining every time there's a, an agm about the fact that they're required to mock um securities through the income statement where he points out we haven't got any income off apart from the dividends they leave those aside for the moment but securities and share price fluctuations 
they're not income. They're just people marking up and down stuff that you already own. But in your case, they just mark it from the start and it gets counted as that and we don't even care where they are now, basically. Do you know what it looks like? It's like a crude revenue. A crude revenue where management uh. says, yeah, yeah, we've got this contract. We're definitely getting 300 grand. <laughs> and then next year, you look at the statement and you go, why have they only added 150 grand on? Because that's what a crude revenue is. It's mm. management making shit up. <laughs> Excellent. That's how we account for those things. So maybe there is hope for it staying below the mainstream um, radar then. Anyway, um, that was crypto, and that was Steve's kind of uh, thoughts on crypto and me attempting to try and hang in there and figure stuff out with him. It feels like it's a really interesting time in the crypto markets for people that care a lot about them. So it was well worth having a chat, and it was, it was good fun. I enjoyed it. Um, there's many things I don't know about that Steve does. And to be fair, this podcast was originally designed by neither of us to be an extension of our DM chats, and they felt a lot like that, and the last few episodes have as well. So... Good fun stuff. Let's get back to familiar productive assets and stuff then. We got the good, we got the bad, and we got the ugly. And this time it's the US uh, edition because the UK one went down reasonably well. So uh, I'll kick us off this time then. Here's my good one uh, from the US. It's Costco. Uh, Everyone knows what Costco is. It's a retailer uh, and it sells things for really, really cheap. Um, But the reason I've set this up here as my good one, it's not a particularly cheap stock for what it's worth. Uh, is that I've been learning about this one a little bit and I've been trying to appreciate what really there is that's good about this business. And I think there's quite a lot that's really good about this uh, business. It's worth noting, I think, first of all, that this business is anti-fragile in the proper anti-fragile sense. Um, So it's not a kind of super robust uh, thing. Anti-fragile things in the kind of proper, as described by Nassim Taleb, who I think coined the term... Uh, enough about coins anyway but uh, the idea of anti-fragile stuff is that it gets stronger when it's under pressure uh, basically and it does really well when things around are chaotic so robust things hold up when things are chaotic anti-fragile things get stronger uh, in that situation and Costco might be an example of that the idea being that in kind of economic chaos what do people do they run and find the cheapest food they possibly can and that's usually in a Costco um, and they find a lot of it yep Yep, so they'll buy two things in Costco and fill up their entire house because the things come in enormous sizes. Yeah, a four kilo can of beans, please. That's it. Yep, just the one. Can't carry any more. But that will be 25 pence uh, or or whatever we sell things for in Costco in this country. Uh, But they're a retailer and they're a discount retailer. uh, And with those two things borne in mind, you would expect the margins to be pretty terrible, wouldn't you, Steve? Are they terrible? They are terrible, Steve. Yes. Uh, operating margins are around three and a half percent. And where ordinarily we look at retailers like Dunelm that we were looking at before and thinking, gosh, that's good. They can charge more for their products. Costco aggressively tries to charge less and less and less for its products. It wants to sell things as close to cost as it possibly can. And Steve knows why. Why, Steve? And that's because they don't really want to make money off the things in the shop. They're more interested in the Costco membership. See, we don't even rehearse this stuff, uh, but Steve knows that basically the way this company plans on making money is they have a model that says you're going to give them money for absolutely nothing. Um, What you're going to pay them for is so that you can go into their shop and then pay them for some more stuff, uh, effectively. It's like um, when my wife tells me that she's won something. 
Um, and I say, what have you won? And it's an eBay auction. So what you've won is the opportunity to go and pay more than anyone else wanted to pay for something else. <laughs> Congratulations, we are the winners. Um, but in Costco, you don't pay more than anyone else would pay. You buy things for basically less than anyone else would do it. And such is the strength of that Costco reputation that people will hand over their damn money for nothing other than the chance to go and buy things in a Costco. Uh, to buy that enormous tin of beans that no human has ever needed. Uh, but... Um, this is really kind of interesting. And here's the stock I would compare this to, I think. I compare this to Amazon in an interesting way. And Steve and I go different ways on Amazon's retail arm here. He's of the view that he would happily spin that retail arm out and give it to, well, me, I guess. Um, but the point of Costco, and this is a point Charlie Munger makes, is that such is their reputation for charging the lowest prices for anything and their consumers know that they will charge them as little as they possibly can. And it's barely worth shopping around, to be honest, to try and find better value anywhere because you won't. Amazon doesn't have a reputation for that uh, by any means. But what I think Amazon does have, and the reason it's trying to uh, operate on a kind of similar model, is I think, in my head, I don't associate Amazon with being super cheap. I associate it with not being crazy expensive or playing a massive premium. But I do associate Amazon with getting stuff to you fast. I think if anyone can get this thing to me quicker than anybody else, it's going to be Amazon. So if I'm going to order something online and I need it or even want it in a hurry, um, Prime membership will get it to me oftentimes later that damn day, which I think is fairly smart. And I'm not convinced anyone else is going to get it to me at anything like that rate. So in the same way that I will therefore again go and give Amazon Prime money for absolutely nothing uh, other than the chance to buy stuff off them uh, and watch some telly and stuff. Uh, Costco will take my money for nothing other than the ability to go and buy more stuff off them. Stock trades at a 35 price earnings ratio, so it's not cheap. It is net cash positive, though, from what I can see of it, and it's growing at around 10%, which is kind of not bad for a, a kind of retail uh, outfit. It's not got massive operational leverage, but you get the general idea for how this works. I don't think it's quite there at the moment to buy, but I'm looking at it. It's a interesting stock. I was just having a look at the the, the membership fees at the moment. Uh, they look like they're um, they they've only raised it a few times. So since 1983, the uh, original membership for Costco is only 25 dollars uh, in in the US, and uh, just over that period of time, so we've been what 1734 years. Uh, it's only actually at 60 dollars now. So that's about five dollars every five years. And we're right on that five-year mark, Steve. So you mm. could be about to see uh, the Costco membership potentially go up to $65. Um, and apparently, when this happens, just, just some interesting data here, when they do lump up the price, they still get a 91% renewal rate. Uh, so, yeah, you may have a, a sort of flattish year if that happens again with a 5% rise and 91% annual renewal rate. But from that point onwards, uh, you know, you, you should see some nice steady growth return to Costco. It's a very interesting business model, I think. Yep. And they get away with hiking prices, which tells you that in inflation, they are a company that has pricing power. That is exactly what pricing power looks at. Uh, looks like rather we are going to charge you an extra five dollars for absolutely nothing other than the chance to go and buy some stuff and you're going to take it because um you think we're worth it for some reason or another so this to me screams great business great price or oh, not quite yet but i'm sh i don't have anything in the defensive sector at the moment and i would love to pick this up and hang on to it at a good price 
Yeah, it's one of those stocks that's perennially, perennially on my watch list and never, ever seems to get down to a price that I'd be willing to pay for it. Mm. Uh, one of the things that the dividend enthusiasts will enjoy is Ooh, that, yeah. yes, this pays a steady dividend, but every so often it pays you a whacking uh, special dividend as well when it wants to get rid of a little bit of surplus cash. It doesn't like to hold too much cash on its balance sheet for whatever reason. Um, so, yeah, every so often, every it's usually two to three years, it, it usually drops all of that cash out in a in a decent whack. So there's, there's plenty to like about Costco. Um, I think it's a really, really interesting stock. Mm. Okay, Steve, what's your, what, what have you found that's good in the USA? Well, I really had a look around and I thought, look, I'm supposed to be the growth guy, so I'm going to try and find you a good growth stock that has been beaten up with the rest of them. So that can't be too hard, hard, can it? Well, here's an elevator pitch for buying Twilio. And yeah. uh, I guess I'm, I'm mad to be suggesting this, uh, a, a huge loss-making growth stock uh, that's down 67.5% uh, at the time of recording year to date, and that means it's about 80% off its highs last year. Here goes. Uh, so Twilio is a $15 billion tech company. It's in the comm sector primarily. So the best way to think of it is like an app store for developers um, rather than build features like text messaging and alerts, voice calls, videos, authentication alerts, and, and things like that. Much in the same way we talked about Cadence selling IP blocks. That's kind of similar how Twilio's API works. Um, save time to build the bespoke things that your app needs and not reinvent the wheel. So it's customers. They're companies like Airbnb, Lyft, Stripe, Marks and Spencers in the UK, Steve, Deliveroo, Chime Bank. Uh, it handles about 10 trillion uh, API events a year and sends out about 1.3 trillion emails. Oh. So it's business. Yeah, it's big. Its business model is focused on usage-based billing. So it allows a customer to pay for the actual amount of Twilio services they use. It doesn't get bogged down having to estimate what they'll use and then getting caught out and having to up the packages. It, it, you know, there's none of that with Twilio. It's a literally pay-as-you-play kind of deal. Um, in terms of figures, Twilio's growing pretty quickly. If you head back to 2018, Twilio had about 650 million in annual revenue. Um, you're looking at it uh, at its last reported figures, the end of 2021. Uh, we're 4.5 times that now. Uh, in the last reported quarter, Twilio announced revenue had grown 48% year on year, and that was despite some pretty tough comps. That quarter alone was 861.6 million. So essentially 210 million more than, than just five years prior, uh, previous would have been in the full year. Um, so Twilio's share count is one of the things that people would, would point you to. It, it's doubled. And actually, that rate looks to be slowing at the moment. So we've 4.5x revenue. We've, we've doubled the share count. That's more revenue per share. Uh, Twilio's got about 5.35 billion in cash at the moment. Um only 1.2 billion in debt. So there's room here for Twilio to make some cash and stock moves, definitely. Uh, Dollar-based expansion rate, Dabna, we quite like this one, don't we, Steve? Mm -hmm. 127%. So nice. it looks to me like they're pretty good at landing and expanding. Um, so look, this is a, a cash tomorrow kind of stock. So how do we value it? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> it's a tricky business and it's got a lot of fast moving parts but in the absence of me giving you some figures here are some metrics that are correct at the moment so it's price to sales is about 4.84 that's as cheap as it has ever been that's cheaper than it ipo'd 
Uh, enterprise value to sales, 3.68. Uh, price to gross profit is about 10. Um, so, I mean, they're the ones that jump out to me as indicating that it's at least as cheap as it has ever been. Uh, so stock-based comp here is going to be your earnings killer uh, for the foreseeable future. Although the CEO, Jeff Lawson, recently hinted at the end of the last report that in 2023, he's going to look to start cutting costs and actually pivoting to earnings. Uh, he was talking about non-GAAP profitability, um, something that Twilio doesn't really concern itself with. Um, so look, I want Twilio to be as big as possible uh, when it pivots to profitability. It's not a cash-intensive business, uh, so it's in the interest of shareholders for it to spend that money wisely, broaden the service offering, more revenue in the future equals more cash flow in the future uh, when they eventually do pivot. Um, so look, now for me seems as good a time as ever to get your hands on some Twilio. I mean, we know it's a, a mature company. We know it's beating expectations. It could be a semblance of value. Um, of course, when we compare it historically, um, I think Potentially, we've got a bit of, uh, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater scenario in tech here. Is it something that jumps out at you, Steve? I love this area to be looking through. I love the fact that this is unprofitable. Every time I look on CNBC, someone's busy telling me about, buy tech. Tech is beaten down. Not the unprofitable stuff. That's all garbage. Uh, buy the profitable tech stuff. Buy anything ranging between sort of roughly... Apple, Salesforce, uh, IBM, Microsoft, uh, that kind of obvious tech, uh, which tells me that the place I should be looking is in the unobvious tech, in mm. the stuff that is currently loss making because everyone's busy running into the stuff that has strong cash flows. We're still cash flow negative then at Twilio. I was just having a look at that. Um, uh, and I'm okay with that thought for the time being. The thing that I think you need to tread a little bit carefully around with this kind of business, you kind of touched on it, but it jumped out at me was I'm fine with loss-making stuff as long as we're not about to run out of money uh, in this environment too much. And that's going to be a theme coming back for me a little bit later. So um, I like this as a kind of... It's a sort of rule-breaker over rule-breaker uh, thing in a certain way. Um, you're supposed to buy stocks that have been winning. Uh, the business has been winning reasonably well, but the stock hasn't. The stock is down a long way, as you mentioned. It runs a pay-as-you-play model, uh, which is interestingly contrarian to my ears when i think of this i think isn't everyone supposed to be talking about subscription revenue all over the place which is basically the opposite of pay as you play right yeah and snowflake run the pay as you play model as well mm. so this is a model that is coming to a little bit of uh, of prominence i guess uh, it's an interesting model for me it, it says you look we've got supreme confidence that our product is of value to you if, if if they can give you the API and you don't actually have to pay a cent for it unless you use it, then what's the incentive to not try it? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, I guess that's Twilio's idea. Go on, try it. Try it. Yeah. See if you can build anything better because I don't, for a lot of these things, they're kind of mundane kind of services that, you know, would take time to build and have very little return, um, for, for especially for somebody who, you know, just isn't, you know, if it's an authentic uh, authentication alert, then what, you know, why, what benefit do you get out of sending that? You may as well, you may as well just buy the service in, get somebody else to send it, and don't waste your time on it. So yeah, I think Twilio is in a really interesting sort of sort of sector, uh, and I, I can't see a reason why people wouldn't try it. Yeah, it's shifted sentiment a little bit lately, hasn't it? From thinking this doesn't have a PE ratio because it's unprofitable, therefore I can pay whatever I like for it because hmm. I'm not buying it at a massive PE. There isn't one. So this thing doesn't have a PE ratio, therefore I'm not willing to pay anything at all uh, for it. 
Um, and the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, to be honest. There's some stuff that doesn't have PE ratios that's probably terrible and some stuff that doesn't have PE ratios that's probably great. Uh, and Twilio, when you have a look at it, or I was just looking at numbers very sort of briefly, you're looking at gross margins between sort of 40, 50%. If you imagine that gets divided yeah. in half, this is guesswork, right? But um, to me, something 20, 25% uh, net margin when this business is at scale and profitable, bearing in mind the kind of business it is, where it gets its money from, the fact that it is reasonably cost efficient, or I would expect it to be and reasonably well insulated from inflation. Uh, it looks to me like you get something like 4.84 times uh, sales, 20, 25% <laughs> margin, maybe times it by about four or five, then and you're going to be around a 20 uh, PE for a company that's growing like an absolute weed. Um, <laughs> sure, you will need to discount that back because that cash will come to you later rather than sooner and you will want to factor that in. But 20 times earnings for something growing pretty strongly. Um, that would be the way I would think about valuing this. I would build in a bit more for the uncertainty because I haven't seen it put up a 25% profit margin yet. I haven't seen it put up any profit margin at all. But that's the way I'd be thinking about this kind of thing, I think. Yeah, and the I guess just to build on that point, uh, one of the things with Twilio is, is that, you know, if you were putting this into a DCF calculator and you were saying in 10 years' time this is going to grow at 5%, with a five billion cash pile in their hand, and uh, uh, they do enjoy making acquisitions of small, fast-growing, you know, little companies that they just sell the tape onto their API. I mean, growth in this company could be Salesforce, like where you're talking twenty years at twenty percent. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So, uh, when they do pivot to profitability, if that is in twenty twenty three, if you believe that's to be the case. Uh, if you was to factor in 20 years of decent growth from that period onwards, you're, you're talking about a big company here, a big mm. company with big profit margins. Now, of course, the opposite to that argument is, is that, you know, somebody comes and steals the pudding. But um, I don't see that at the moment. I don't see where that the threat, the, the really big uh, competition is. No, the bigger threat to me. You said this is about 15 billion, did you say, market cap? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it looks to me like if I wasn't constantly worried about antitrust in various things, it might be stealable uh, by somebody. And I would be worried in this stock if I paid an, uh, whatever the high was for it. So 80 plus percent more than this. I'd be currently thinking there's a real danger that I get um, more or less stopped out of this below the level I paid for it. So someone buys it off us at, I don't know, a 15, 20 percent premium, even a 50 percent mm. premium. But I'm still going to end up locking in a loss. Um but at these levels, you know, the worst thing that happens to you is you get bought out at a premium. Oh, well, that could be a lot worse. There's people currently running after deals where someone's getting bought out at a premium um, in stuff hmm. like Activision Blizzard. If this was a UK stock, it would have already been bought. Mm. Arm is coming to the UK from what I understand of it, which is uh, hmm. interesting and we'll see how that goes. Anyway, those are our two good stocks. Uh, we'll go a bit quicker because we don't like being mean about stocks that other people might own. I'm not aware that anyone uh, owns my stock that I consider to be bad. Uh, and it's just what I consider it to be, by the way. And the same goes for the ugly one. These are just our views on these things. There's lots that doesn't make sense to us. We have circles of competence. Mine is more of a dot than a circle. But here's a stock I'm really struggling to see that I want to own right now. It's called Lucid Motors. Um, and it seems to me to be something of a stock that is hanging over from the days not so very long ago where all you needed was a picture of an electric car uh, and you did very, very well. Now, Lucid Motors has an awful lot more than a picture of an electric car. It has an electric car and it looks like a hell of a good uh, electric car for what it's worth. Um, from what I've seen of it, 
I'm not a massive car guy, but I would very much like to own one. It's got a 520 mile range. They've got an SUV coming in 2024, which also looks like a very, very nice thing. No problems with the product uh, here from what I can tell of it. I do worry about the uh, products, uh, the price, the stock and the business underneath it a little bit, though. So we're looking at a forward price to sales, which ought to be a kind of hopeful number here. But it's a forward price to sales of around 23 times. Um, and that is quite a lot for, I think, any stock at any time. And I don't think this is a great time to be paying that for that either, because we're still looking at things like supply chain issues, especially around semiconductors um, and costs of uh, materials, lithium, all that kind of thing that goes into It's a battery powered um, uh, sedan that they kind of have, I think. But I'm expecting inflation to be difficult here for them. I'm expecting sales to struggle as they struggle to get hold of parts, especially chips. Um, there's an obvious point that we've been talking about a little bit lately, which is that these things are not cheap. Um, and it may be that that doesn't matter to their client base. It might be that their kind of backlog is big enough to kind of work its way through this and the rate they're producing them isn't enough to keep up with demand anyway. But I'm not so sure about that. They're, they have a market cap of about twice Twilio. Uh, it's a 31 billion um, with capacity for producing about 34,000 cars a year. Margins on these, I think, when they're kind of fully profitable, if you look across the rest of the automakers and they arguably don't have the scale of the other automakers, might be somewhere around 10, 15 percent. So you're looking at about a billion in earnings at best after five years from now. And to me, that's just ridiculously high. Even if this goes nowhere, that's still a price earnings of 30. Um, and I'm not sure that's going to fly uh with this market and i don't think i particularly i'm not particularly calling the stock to come down and i'll tell you why in a moment but i don't like that as a business proposition uh, for what it's worth uh i also am concerned that they have about five billion in cash i think and are burning that at a rate of about a quarter of that every quarter so in a year's time i was asking steve about the issue of running out of cash at twilio which doesn't look like an issue it looks to me like it might be one here uh they are burning through cash at a hell of a rate yeah, this is a cash-intensive kind of business, isn't mm. it? You're going to need those factories set up. You need the robotics. You need the you need the manpower. You need the technology. All of these things don't come don't come cheap. And and it's quite easy to see when Buffett held up that list of cars uh, companies that have all gone all gone bust since then. It was, there was I think it was just just F's when they or something like that. It was it was an abstract letter, was it? Just the uh, MAs, I think. Was it? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think this is quite easy to see how these kind of companies go bust and those costs have risen exponentially. Um, it looks like a, looks like a great car. It would be, it, it would be a shame, but, uh, I just think in terms of where you put your money at the moment, uh, I'm not so sure this is uh, the best place. A lot of very nice cars that I'd like to drive around don't make for very good businesses. Uh, there's an example from the UK that we've heard talked about several times now, which is Aston Martin. Uh, would I like an Aston Martin? Yes, very much. Uh, would I like to buy one? I'd like to be able to buy one. And if I had enough money, I wouldn't say no. But would I like to own this stock? Not even slightly. Um, that is bankruptcy story after bankruptcy story from what I can tell of it. And I'm not necessarily calling that on Lucid Motors because it does have a massive backing from Saudi Arabia. And there is always a chance that a majority shareholder, I think a lot of their orders actually uh, are going out to Saudi Arabia. There is always a chance when you have a massive shareholder that they come in and do something um, and save the project and keep it going uh, because, well, frankly, they can. 
but I certainly wouldn't put my money into this on the investment side and expect that to happen, because even if that does happen, there's going to be vast amounts of dilution coming through. Yeah, I agree. That's about all I got on this. Um, if anyone does own Lucid uh, and you've got better reasons for owning it than I have and I'm missing them, then do let me know. Um, I hope this goes up for what it's worth. I don't know anyone that owns it, but I would like anyone in it to do pretty well, right? Why does it matter to me what the stock price does of something I don't own? So I'd like to see it go well, but um, I can't see my way into thinking that this is going to be a great business. Uh, it's getting late, Steve. I think we should go ugly. Uh, what are you looking at? Well, my ugly is Charter Communications. Have you ever come across this one, Steve? I think Buffett owns it. <laughs> Does he? Okay, yeah. so look, if, if I was going to show you the figures for Charter, I think that you'd think this is a pretty cool business. It's a broadband and it's a mobile services provider. It's pretty big, uh, 75 billion market cap. Uh, they do about 50 billion in revenue annually, 45% gross margins, uh, record low ch uh, churn rates, says the CEO. Uh, this all reaches the bottom line too, 20 billion in EBITDA, uh, net income of about 4.65 billion, PE of about 16 at the yeah, moment. that sounds uh, about right based on what you said. Yeah, it uh, beats analyst expectations in the last four quarters, has an average target price, which is about 50% higher than today's price. Steve, it is even doing buybacks, uh, big buybacks too. Since 2016, I'm working out they've bought about 42% of their stock back. Uh, hmm. So why is it down 31% year to date? It's 45% off its high. This is a cash today kind of company, Steve. This is what the market wants, isn't it? Well, I've written down one word. I skimmed over the notes you sent me. I think I remember it, but there is one thing you haven't told me about so far that would cause me to think this is bad because everything so far sounds pretty good. Um, hmm. I'll tell you the word I've written down in a moment, uh, but go for it. Well, the word you've written down, I'm going to guess, is debt, because that's what Charter has a lot of, and that's what the market doesn't want. Just for the people that they were only listening, Steve just held up a note with the word debt scribbled on it. Mm -hmm. So look, Charter are knee-deep in debt. They've got $95 billion of it, and the average interest rate is 4.6%. And guess what? It purchased $3.6 billion of its own stock last quarter, and it only had $1.8 billion of free cash flow. How did it fund that, Steve? It took out more debt. So look, Factoring in last quarter's free cash flow, adding back in this one-time expense, I get Charter to be at about 10 times normalised cash flows. Uh, it's pretty cheap on the face of it. But look, in rising interest rate scenarios, it's absolutely not cheap. If Charter is forced to roll over just half of its current debt load to new rates, uh, we're adding on the, obviously, from the 0.75% uh, rate rise, that's going to add about $800 million in additional costs annually. Uh, that's going to hurt your free cash flow. That's going to hurt your bottom line. You run into the issue that the only thing growing at this company is their inability to service this debt. If I was going to say something quickly... Charter needs to pull its head out of its ass, stop doing buybacks, pay down its debt, and look, then it can restart the buybacks if it desires, because if not, this one could get really ugly. Yeah, uh, I was just looking at its credit rating, which did not surprise me. It's not very good. It's double B plus, which I think is slightly below investment grade. Sven made the point in his uh, stock analysis of Markel, which, by the way, I really enjoyed and I thought was a great Sven video. He pointed out, here's the difference between Berkshire Hathaway and Markel. Markel owes debt at high rates. Um, and he asked the question, which I think is a good question, and it's relevant here as well. What the hell is anyone doing owing debt at 4.6% in this kind of interest rate environment? Um, the interest rate's going to get worse on this. And if you're already starting from 4.6%, which you've been doing buybacks with, 
it makes it really hard to see how this is the kind of management that even if you're Buffett and you like buying back in your own stock, in fairness, it's one thing to do that if you're Apple and you think, well, we got net cash set on the balance sheet that's just get losing to inflation. Let's do something with it. Let's go buy in some stock or something, even if it's at the wrong price. Taking on debt to do that seems to me to be, well, that seems to me a bridge further than I would like to go. Look, it's the first thing you read about in personal finance, isn't it? If somebody mm. says to you, you've got debt at 20% and you want to put something into market and then 10%, you pay off the debt at 20% on the credit card and then you put the money into the market. Charter are doing this in reverse. They're buying back their own stock when they've got high interest debt, uh, which if they have to roll over becomes even higher interest rate debt, um, just sat there being, well, potentially unserviced. And I, I think that's that's not good. Nope, I just had a look at my favorite debt metric um, here, which is operating um, income over interest expense. So the amount they're paying out in interest not paying down debt, just paying down interest for the moment as a fraction of their operating income. It's it's over a third, uh, basically, which is way too high for my liking here. So you have um, operating income and that's more or less cutting them in half between their operating income and their net income. So about 11 billion in operating income, just over four of that's going out on just paying interest on stuff. It's not doing anything. It's not making any money. This debt seems to be hurting this company. Yeah, I take your view on that. I am not a fan of this. They pay a dividend at all? They don't. Oh, just just buybacks then. Yeah, which you know, why not? Why not just pay a dividend as well? Why don't mm. pay out the rest of your free cash flow? Your non-existent free cash flow. Why don't we just take out debt to pay dividends? Take out debt to do buybacks, and you know, we'll buy more private jets. That's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's the way you want to think about these kinds of things. So, market cap, you said, was about seventy-five billion or so. That's right, yep. Um, and I'm wondering what you get to when you kind of add in the debt on this in that case. I'll just have a quick look. So there's about $3 billion in current debt. Good grief. Um, so I'm looking at this and I'm seeing about $3 billion in current debt, which isn't too bad on a market cap mm. of 75 or so. So that takes us up to, what, 78 or so. Mm -hmm. And then we get to $88.5 billion in long-term debt, which is what you're kind of buying in. Um, so add another, what shall we call it, $91 billion on top of your 71-something. So you're going to... More or less double that price earnings ratio that you were looking at there before we take off the cash. And cash is, there's not a lot of that at all. 601 no. million uh, in cash. This is why this thing has a low PE. This is why this thing looks cheap. Because what you are going to have to pay after you finish buying the stock is down all this debt. And you're paying down more debt than you are market cap, from what I can see of it. So you said a 16 PE or something like that. Uh, slightly more than that. We might now call this 30... 35, yeah, that was between mm. 32 and 35, so it's just over double it, right? Um, uh, that doesn't look so attractive anymore. No, it's not attractive. Uh, I don't. Mm. To be honest with you, I think this is one of those companies that when you start to learn to look at balance sheets and things like that, uh, that you start to realise just how much trouble this company could potentially be in. If these interest rates, and, and bear in mind these interest rates aren't finished rising yet, mm. and we're talking about 800 million added onto the costs just, just now, if we if we go up to three, or if we have to go to four, or five, or six percent before uh, you know the Fed stops raising inflation, uh, so stops uh, starts to wane inflation. Uh, whoa, I mean that this this company has too much debt; it becomes completely unmanageable. Yeah, and I can't see how they're going to pay it either because I'm looking at free cash flows at around eight and a half billion. So long term debt is about ten times that. Uh, they spend about half of their operating cash flows on CapEx, from what I can see of it. This is not a kind of cash-light, asset-light business. I'm, uh, I'm sure Buffett owns this thing, but I can't work out why um, for, hmm. for some reason. 
Uh, maybe something then that he didn't buy on an open market. I don't know. This is speculative here, right? Uh, it feels more like the kind of company that Buffett bails out than the kind of company that Buffett uh, buys and reports on his 13F because he's been busy during the... Uh, either that or Todd or Ted is getting fired. It's the companies he doesn't like, the high capex with high maintenance. You know, these are this mm. is this is essentially a broadband provider in, in the US. So these are teams on the ground fixing um, fixing broadband, putting new lines in. This is this is heavy, heavy cost stuff. And I mean, I, I was looking at its revenue growth. It's only growing at sort of between four and five percent. There's nothing here that shows a company that's you know laying down the, the groundwork to to grow out of this problem, uh, which is probably one of the ways you would hope they would do it. It, it, it looks like a, the figures you see now are pretty much the figures you're going to see uh, at least on the income statement for you know the next three, four, five years. Uh, so then you flick over to the balance sheet and you think, well, how on earth does this income statement service this balance sheet? And And I just don't see it. Nope, I don't know either. Um, but that's our show. We decided to go ugly and we didn't like what we found, so it must be time to go home. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the Playing Footsie Show. Join us at the same time next week when we will have even more stuff to think about, talk about, laugh about, and generally enjoy. Take care. We'll see you soon.